are from California, where it's nine o'clock. I am Francisque Savignard, the founder and CEO of ePartrade, and I'm with Judy Kin this morning, the co-founder of ePartrade. Good morning, Judy. How are you doing? Good morning, Francisque and everyone. Excellent. We have the great Brad Gilly, who is going to be hosting our webinar today. So, uh, Judy, we, we got uh, something special today. We have uh, a double feature, right? Yep. Our first double feature, and we are excited and fortunate to have Zeke with Ferreira Racing Components and also Luke Wilson for Piston Racing, some of the best engines around. Excellent. And so, uh, and at 10 o'clock, we're going to be joined by uh, Lake Speed from Total Seal uh, Piston Ring and Sean Navarro from Ellen Engineering. And we're going to be talking about uh, 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 cylinder head coatings. So stay with us. It's going to be a long program and it's going to be hosted uh, both sessions by uh, Brad, uh, who is a terrific host and has been, you know, working with us for a few months now, starting with Online Race Industry Week. So one important thing, and I want to uh, reinforce that we have created and we produce those tech webinars weekly uh, for you to engage. So please, please use the chat button. Uh, ask all the questions you want. Uh, the guys we're bringing on today are actual expert uh, and, and their expertise is priceless. So feel free to ask them as many questions as you wish. That is very important, right, Judy? That's right. And, and keep in mind, both Total Seal and Freya, they're showcasing on here. So buyers, so when buyers register and they are on this platform, it's really very similar to walking up and down aisles, looking at the latest and greatest in the racing products and technology. They're here for you. So if you have interest, what you do is you hit that request more information button with questions or if you want to become a dealer and you two connect. I'm often asked how this platform is very similar to a trade show. Absolutely. Very good. So I see uh, we got Zeke and Luke on. Good morning, gentlemen. So Brad Gilly, on to you for the next hour. Well, thank you very much, Francisque. Really appreciate that. And uh, as Francis mentioned, as Judy mentioned, this is interactive. This also involves you. So if you have a question at any point throughout, just please feel free to use the chat feature and we will do our best to get all of the questions out there. But I do want to welcome Zeke Yerudia uh, as well as Luke Wilson. And we appreciate both of you gentlemen coming on here today and looking forward to talking about valve trains and valve train components and all of those good things. Uh, Zeke, I'll start with you. How are you doing today? Good. Good morning to you, Brad. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you. And, uh, and Luke, you're the owner of Four Piston Racing. Uh, thank you for coming on with this as well. How are you doing? Doing great. Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, awesome. Well, as the questions come up, if, uh, if I'm directing a question to either Zeke or to you, Luke, and, and either one of you feels uh, a, a need to jump in and maybe add to whatever that part of the conversation is, by all means, please do so. You know, this is wide open and this is very interactive, but um, I don't want to necessarily leave anything on the table if there's some great things that we can talk about. So, uh, Zeke, if we can just start with you, first of all, and just tell us about, um, you know, everything that's going on with Ferreira Racing Components and really more specifically what we're going to be talking about here today. Yeah, so Ferreira Racing, I mean, we're, we're a 50 plus year company, right? Um, business as a whole has transferred a lot of what we do initially uh, to valve train components. Um, our main business is valves. Uh, we've been manufacturing valves uh, since, since the 70s. And that, that was our core business where then we initially started building uh, other components around the valves that work within the cylinder 
cylinder head to help out and achieve performance and uh, reliability, as well as better components that we've seen in testing that we could create uh, around our valves. And that's really where the story really be begins with us is knowing where our background comes from and the two owners that are part of Ferrea, um, they were engine builders. I mean, they were part of Chrysler, they were part of Ford, uh, they were in their engineering departments. They, they won many, many championships uh, in Argentina. Uh, initially, that's where the company first started. Uh, and then it obviously came here in the 70s. Um, but their background really focused on mainly cylinder heads and cylinder head valve train components. And then the engine was looked at as well as the entire build, but mainly looking at building and creating and actually um, the owner itself, Horatio Ferreira, um, he built cylinder heads himself back in the 60s and 70s and designed them for a lot of these race teams. Luke, let's ask you, I mean, uh, as far as using the Ferreira components and all of that in, in your normal day-to-day, uh, -day, I mean, first, you know, if you would just kind of give us an overview about Four Piston Racing and how Ferreira helps you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ferreira really was a, a really instrumental in us even starting our business. We were, um, we started this as a, just out of passion for cylinder heads. Um, we, we initially didn't build a lot of engines to start with. We wanted to just do cylinder heads. And you're always looking for a company that can deliver the products that you need when you need them. Um, and that has good quality control. Uh, there's nothing wor worse in, in the racing industry than you know being on a time crunch and opening components and finding out that they aren't what you thought you had or that you have flaws that you have to address. And Ferreira always has given us the best right out of the box quality and it goes a long way when we're speeding along or we're on a deadline we have to have those things really exactly what we expect and so we've stuck with Ferreira um, simply because of reliability and uh, consistency of manufacturing we know what we're getting and we know how we can set our schedule based on the fact that we know we're going to be we don't have to worry about that aspect of the engine anymore that's going to be right so our business transitioned from cylinder heads to more of designing racing engines for specific applications because we're in a market this multi-valve market um, that's that's growing this is this is the type of vehicles we all have now um, a lot of four cylinder six cylinder multi-valve overhead cam engines and uh, they're raced all over the world in all types of different applications, road racing, hill climb, dirt cars, uh, anything you can imagine all over the world are using these engines. And, you know, there, I would say that there's kind of a shortage of engine builders in that market that specialize specifically in that. And so we saw an opportunity to go into that and really um, just bring that level up bring it up to a motorsports grade product and something that people can rely on. And Frey was a big part of that. Well, Zeke, when it comes to multi-valve technology and what Frey is doing right now, can you give us a bit of an overview about what you guys are working on and more specifically, you know, how it might even benefit a lot of our audience here today? 
Yeah, so a lot of the cylinder heads, obviously going from, you look at the past from going from two valve to four valve. Four valve cylinder heads, multi-valve overhead cams type cylinder heads have really hit, hit the ground here. Um, and when you look at hitting the ground truly in the US multi-valve cylinder head technology came about in the 90s. I mean, if you look at the early to mid 90s, that's really where uh, we focused a lot in getting our valve train components in a lot of these engines. Whether you had drag racing, whether you had a circle track car, or whether you had an open wheel car, uh, you know, we focused a lot into the multi-valve technology in those times. And, and the main aspect was because we saw this coming in the early 2000s to mid-2000s, this technology. Um, obviously, today, we're working a lot with multi-valve cylinder heads, but the forecast and what we saw uh, back then and what we see today, especially with the electronics, the data log systems that we run today, um, we're at a point today with multi-valve technology that I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier than it was 15 years ago to really make like a tremendous amount of horsepower with these engines. Um, and it, it's become basically now the two valve technology against the four valve technology. And a lot of aspects people have embraced the four valve technology because they see the gains that you can get with these cylinder heads, as well as the reliability. I mean, you look at just, just an example, look at size of valves, you know, mind you, there's more valves in an engine on a multi-valve cylinder head compared to a two valve, but you look at the overall distance from where a valve to valve clearance is from a larger uh, two valve cylinder head to, to a four valve, you can control the engine so much easier today with a four valve cylinder head overall with all the data log systems. And, and I don't take anything away from the two valve technology because it still exists today. But in, in today's world, uh, Ford has done one, has done an exceptional job of coming out with really great four valve technology. Uh, GM is just starting to uh, embrace it a lot into a lot of different applications. They're still racing uh, two valve technology, but into the four valve technology, it just becomes where Ford has really captivated that technology in the V8 segment. You know, if you look at the domestic market, uh, the Coyote, you know, there, there's, you know, tons of videos that you can find online and, and you know, people have been doing testing and comparing, you know, both the Coyote engine and the LS platforms, for example. Great platforms, very popular in our market, but you look at really where is the aspect of the flow characteristics of the cylinder head and how well the dynamics work. And the four valve is just, it's tremendous to work with. And it's, it's really, I think here to stay, obviously. Um, I think the four valve technology would, would enhance uh, different avenues, even when you go down the road and you talk about hybrid systems, you know, inside vehicles and efficiency. Um, that's where a lot of the racing, road racing, if you look at Le Mans, 24 hours of Daytona, uh, a lot of these endurance type races where a lot of these 
different race teams have seen the improvement with hybrid systems with four valve technology work so well. Now, Luke, on that aspect too, there are a lot of different people who have different schools of thought of what they like. There are some people who want, give me the latest and greatest. I want everything that's going to work. I'm all about the new technology. And there are some people saying, all right, wait a second, let's go with what we know. I'm going to want something really bulletproof under the hood, a long time proving technology. Let's find a way to make that better. So when it comes to the multi-valve technology and the engines that you're working on and that you're building, what do you say to a racer? What do you say to a racer who is maybe more from the old school and says, hey, let's just go with what we know? Well, we have to cater to both. So we're still being, uh, you know, we're doing four valve engines that still have mechanical injection, constant flow systems. We have then, you know, people that have moved from, it was like 10 years ago, we were trying to get people to stop looking at the carburetor and start looking at um, fuel, you know, electronic fuel injection. But I have some carb guys that would like to teach me a few lessons. And it's just, there, there's, it's all relevant. Um, and, and now today we deal with it with direct injection. We're, we're just on the tip of the iceberg as far as understanding how to extract the maximum amount of horsepower out of direct injection you know, engines, they're very different. The cylinder heads are drastically different. We have to think about the valve seat angles totally different. Um, the airflow just moves through the port differently and it doesn't have fuel in it. So uh, we have to be looking forward and we have to, you know, go ahead and embrace this new technology and get ahead of it because if we're not, we're going to be behind. Um, at the same time, we still do have to take care of, uh, there's still a lot of engine development to be had with older technology. I'm still on the dyno right now with a constant flow injection setup uh, for a USAC midget. And it's a new engine that's introduced to the series. So there's still horsepower to be found and you need to focus on where you can uh, maximize your profits and, and we all wanna win. And if you can win and you can make reliable products, um, then you're gonna be around for a long time, but you can't ignore new technology, that's for sure. Uh, this direct injection thing, it's changing however, you know, and it, it may be here for emissions or idle, you know, I, a lot of idle emissions, but it also has some performance uh, advantages as well as far as throttle response and instantaneous response and, and fuel burn and in endurance racing, fuel burn is very important. We, we have to make sure we, if we can get an extra two laps uh, where someone else couldn't, it could be the difference between winning and losing. So we have to embrace this new technology and uh, try to understand it and, and squeeze every little bit we can out of that thing. Yeah, and even when, when you look at, you know, just just porting-wise, right? And, and this is where, um, you know, obviously Luke and, and, and the team out there, they, these guys do a lot of the cylinder head flowing characteristics as well as looking at the dynamics of the ports. Well, something we've, it's been a challenge for us on the single port exhaust, you know, um, areas on a lot of these typical four valve cylinder heads, we've, we've had to adapt to a lot of that. Um, it's been a challenge because in a lot of cases, you can't get in there and do too much work to these single port exhaust areas. And you really have to, you know, look at and go back and say, all right, should I really increase the size of this valve? You know, should I really look at just putting a standard size valve in this? Should I change any of those dynamics, whether it will increase or decrease some of the flow or hurt, you know, that area? Because 
the fact that, you know, most guys say, well, I start, you know, with, with, you know, typical engine, let's just call it a four cylinder type application. You know, I want to make 300 horsepower on a turbocharge, you know, 350 horsepower. And then it evolves to, you know, I want to make 500, you know, and then it evolves to, I want to make 700. And that's where we always think about a little bit further down the road, you know, where, where will that guy be? Will that guy be at 700? Will he be at, you know, a thousand horsepower or 1200? And that's where these dynamics of these particular cylinder heads have to take a big consideration in really thinking about what avenue to really take and to know that size of valves really make a, a huge amount of difference uh, in those type of uh, cylinder heads. And Luke can probably, you know, talk about a little bit more and what they've seen, especially on those platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, we take four cylinder head development um, or four valve head development, uh, similar approach. Like we're, we're, we, we look at a head and we have limitations in these castings, which are the water jackets and the valve angle, because we have uh, typically valve angles that are much different than maybe you would have seen in a perfectly race developed cylinder head. So for packaging sake, we may have a 25 degree valve angle and we have a small bore engines and you have the valves running really close to each other, running into each other. So increasing the valve size can be a challenge and we have to weigh whether or not the 10 or 12 CFM will get from an extra millimeter of valve size is worth losing, you know, the camshaft center line and, and the valve timings, the valve timing is critical. So a lot of times these engines historically have had oversized exhausts related to the intake. So we will, we will still go into cylinder head development with the idea that we want to get the most CFM possible. And we need to size the seat, the throat, the port, you know, based on what we can physically fit in the head. We have, there's a lot of water jacket in these new heads. Those single port exhaust heads, they're all about flowing water through the head of fold or the, the, the molded in uh, exhaust manifold into the head. And they do that for emissions. Um, they're, they're trying to bring the EGTs down. They're trying to heat the engine up really quickly. So when you first start the car up in the morning, the thing comes up to temperature rapidly and, and, and it's a lot easier to deal with the fuel burn. So a lot of that stuff for emissions can hurt us on the performance side of things when we just get into a racing application. So we're constantly trying to balance valve size versus what port we can actually fit in the cylinder head versus our RPM range. You know, we're taking engines that have an operating range up to 6,800 RPM and we want to turn 9,000 or 10,000 or 11,000 RPM. We have to focus that port design around what the particular racers operating range is. So valve size is a huge thing that we play with. We may have uh, on a naturally aspirated engine, a valve that's so big that it's running, it's, it's nearly running into the side of the bore. And we have to figure out, is that shrouded up so much that it hurts us or does it not matter? We just need to get airflow and fuel into this thing. Or is it a turbocharged application where the valve timing is so much more critical than the few CFM we're going to gain from the bigger valve? So we have some 120 cubic inch four cylinder engines that guys are making 1500, 1800 horsepower with. It sounds crazy, but we got to let the turbo do its job. And the valve timing is so much more critical 
than maybe the 10 or 12 CFM we would gain from a little bit bigger valve. So we have to weigh that out. If it didn't have the turbo on it and it was a naturally aspirated engine, we're pretty well always fighting to get the biggest intake valve we can in there. And uh, lucky enough that the exhaust ports are, they're sized, you know, pretty large really for the for those types of four valve engines because they, they used to use that for emissions as well. So they've got oversized exhaust ports. And and that's not, you know, the rule. That's that's most applications are like that, but not all. But yeah, valve size is critical. I mean, we're constantly playing with that stuff. Yeah, and I actually think that uh, both of you gentlemen just answered one of the questions that did come in from the chat, which asked what are the benefits of oversized valves and multi-valve heads? And it's not always bigger is better, but it's just got to be the right thing for the right application. If you can go big, great, but you can't always. Is that fair? Not That's sure. fair. Yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, we see a lot of mistakes in this. Um, we'll see small shops or engine shops that just, or, or just customers in general, they, they go to a larger valve just because it's larger, uh, you know, and they want bigger is better, right? So a lot of these heads have small seats in them compared to the, the valve. There's not a lot of room to put a bigger valve, so you've got to put bigger seats. But they'll put a bigger valve into a stock port head or a port that was designed around a smaller valve. And if, if let's just say we had an 87% throat on a head that we were working with and we just throw a bigger valve in there. Um, we may be putting ourselves at a disadvantage for camshaft center line when we really had a lot more work to do to maximize the airflow out of the valve that we had where we could start working towards a 92 or 94% throat. Um, and and get more performance out of a smaller valve size. So you have to size these things proportionately to the port. And really we're trying to slow airflow down in these four valve ports a lot. You have this crazy valve angle. They're not stood up like a Formula One engine. They're not stood up like, you know, where the, the valve is very straight. So we have a laid flat port and the airspeed's coming in so fast that it skips over the short turn and hammers into the back of the valve. So a lot of times we're trying to slow that air down. Everybody talks about, oh, I want a high velocity port, uh, you know, a high, high speed, small port. Most of these four valve cylinder heads, very laid flat, very short port length by the time we consider the whole induction track. And, and, and we've got to slow that air down in order to make horsepower and have a good combustion process yeah we just had another question come in said how often do you go to smaller valves and and certainly want to throw that at, at, at both of you but maybe are there applications where you would say in this type of engine or you know with this type of you know intake and things coming in typically you would want to look for something bigger or i know you had mentioned turbos and different things like that you know maybe this type of engine and this type of performance is where you might start looking for smaller, but you're going to also look at all these other aspects and, and Zeke or, or Luke, whoever wants to take that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, just, just in, in the aspect of, let's just talk about two valve, you know, pro stock application, you know, everything obviously has gone fuel injection, you know, um, even in that where you're not having a multi-valve type configuration on a cylinder head, They've even gone to smaller exhaust valves and bigger intake valves. This progression really has been the trend in the past five years, four to five years, where they've, they've found this extra horsepower on the exhaust side, as well as opening up larger and larger intake valves. I mean, if you look at just size of valves, 
uh, typically on those engines, obviously for pro stock, they've been trying to get every inch out of these motors. You know, you're going from point A to point B on a distance and we need to literally get everything that we can out of this engine. The fact is, is that we used to run say a 1900 uh, exhaust valve. Now we're playing with 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. And intake valves have gone extremely large on those engines. So they've obviously, in that type of technology, they've found that the intake needs to get as much as it can out of it. And the exhaust can help itself, but restricting some of the exhaust will help it create a little bit more flow on the back end of that exhaust valve, and in turn, create a little bit more upper part of the engine horsepower. And this is, stands to be true on the four valve technology. You look at the aspect of, we used to run large valves. Let's just call a 2JZ inline six cylinder engine is literally the, the stepping stone of sport compact racing, you know, and what it's come about and what it's evolved into and what it is today. And we're still learning about it, believe it or not, on that platform. But we used to run two millimeter oversized intake and exhaust valves. In today's world, we're going back to standard size on these six cylinder in lines. You know, it's a, either a three liter or 3.4 liter type engine. And we're finding the same amount of horsepower or more with standard size valves on these type of motors. So again, what I think is really the main aspect of this too is the tunability and the data log systems that have implemented to allow you to go and play along with all these different uh, parameters on these engines to help out with going with the smaller uh, uh, exhaust valves. Turbos have gotten, you know, if you look at turbocharged engines, they've gotten well efficient, you know. We used to fight the fact that just retain oil and a turbocharged engine on the turbocharger, you know. That's no longer the case anymore, you know. Um, they're very efficient, very well made. Um, that avenue also, where you look at those applications, it's helped it out tremendously too, where it helps you look at and look at the size of the valve and diminishing the sizes overall. And in turn, it makes the engine just a lot more reliable because you look at a, a size of a valve and distance wise from, you say a, a two 500 uh, intake valve and you look at a really small stem on a valve, your distance, you're getting farther away from that center point of that stem of that valve. The further away you get in there, we call it a seesaw effect. So that valve will flex a lot more in that area and will not be reliable. You're gonna get a lot of bouncing off the sea, valve float will maybe start occurring because uh, the valve is just not comfortable in there. So the smaller areas of that head portion of that valve now has made that valve a lot more stable overall. Interesting. A um, couple more questions from the chat here. We've got a few of them coming in, so definitely want to get to as many as we can, um, which, by the way, uh, Mike Norman had said he definitely found smaller exhaust valves and ports has helped them in their application uh, James McMahon wanted to know, in a NA valve, which has the fuel sprayed directly at the back of the intake valve, what grit finish is best for the port, uh, supposed to, or supposed to say full va uh, four valve? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, 
everything we do, we, we used to hand pour heads. Um, we wore our wrists out doing that. Uh, everything's CNC now. We do see different pick patterns and, and, and different textures making having an effect. Um, and now you're seeing golf ball ports and things like that, uh, which, which you won't see us do. Um, these aren't golf balls. We're not playing golf. Uh, but you can change the dynamics of the port with this texture, even with the, the, text, the golf ball texture. Um, it's not always a bad thing. Uh, but you know, we have, we have this boundary layer that attaches to the port. So if we're talking about port texture and we've done some, a lot of back-to-back dyno testing with mirror finish, almost mirror finished, drastic steps in the pick pattern of the CNC, the dimple port, the whole spectrum. We've done a huge amount of back-to-back testing just to figure out what does work best and it depends on the fuel it depends on the rpm it depends on the port itself what is the airspeed where is the fuel being injected um they're all variables but for the most part we have this boundary layer that attaches to the port wall and then we have faster moving air that rides on that boundary layer and you can affect the thickness of the boundary layer with the port texture so typically we want some type of texture uh, just to soften that boundary layer and make sure that we have a good controlled boundary layer. We get our air speeds in the port. Um, so they're not, we don't have erratic airflow in, in specific areas. I will say that, you know, a lot of times in these four valve heads, we have this limitation of the water jacket that's really close. And so we may, we may need to have a port, you know, a port wall that's only 30 thousandths thick and think about engines that run 75 pounds of boost you know we may we need, we need that 60 thousandths thick but let's just say it's a naturally aspirated engine and we're getting that close to the water jacket imagine putting a golf ball a, a dimple i'll stop calling it golf a dimple wall in that you you have to shrink your port you're already limited you have to shrink your port in order to get the dimple wall in it so not only are we sh- losing some real estate uh, where we need it, but we also now have this dimple wall that actually creates a thicker boundary layer. And where this will be an advantage is if you have way too much port size for your engine. So if we have, if we can't get enough port in the engine, that's going to hurt us bad. We're going to see a really poorly performing engine if we put this dimple wall in there. The port is already too small and we're just making it behave smaller. If we have an engine, let's say we had a two liter engine and we put a cylinder head from a 2.5 liter that needs to turn 11,500 RPM. It's just way too much cylinder head. That dimple port behaving smaller may be an advantage and we may see gains. So, for the most part, we stay away from that. We're looking for the proper port shape, the properly designed port for the specific engine. Texture-wise, you've got a lot you can play with there because um, there's not a huge amount of difference. You've just got to control that boundary layer that's attached to the wall and, and its thickness um, and, and worry about the air that's riding on top of it. And I hope I answered that question. Zeke, you have anything you want to add to that at all? No, I mean, the only thing um, is, is that golf ball effect. I mean, we feel the same way um, where that the, the golf 
uh, you know, the, the, the little pivots or the small little dimples that you, you look at and put on these typical cylinder heads today. Um, it's cute. I mean, I think in, in, in aspects, you know, um, it's a good selling point, I think, for some guys. But we looked at it as well. And we actually look at some, some dynamics in-house and the fact that the, uh, those dimples can actually spread the aluminum on a turbocharged engine uh, and actually form canals, believe it or not. Um, this happens already with a ported head without having the dimple and having those effects um, can inhibit, uh, you know, creating these channels uh, within the aluminum itself, you know, on some of these aluminum cylinder heads. So very dangerous, you know, to, to do that um, because you're already, um, you know, you're fighting against you know, pushing 75, 100 pounds of boost on a turbocharged engine and the aluminum is screaming. I mean, it's yelling at you, you know, like, what are you doing to me? You know, you're, you're trying to, you know, squash me in here and then spread me apart, you know? So that's something that we feel the same uh, in the fact that, um, you know, you try to look at these dynamics and thicken up these areas as much as you can, but you're left with um, environments that are just so crucial on these heads that uh, you need to work in these parameters, you know. Well, you, you mentioned aluminum. Let's talk about uh, the materials and materials for valves. What material valve is the best, say, for a drag racing engine? Right. So great question. I mean, the, you know, this is all depending on the application. Um, when you look at titanium, for example, great material, excellent material. People think that you know, titanium valves is the all and be all. Everybody wants titanium valves. It's the best. Um, it is the best, but in certain applications. And those applications really have to look at with the fine comb tooth, with the fact that you really have to see if that application either has some type of fuel, you know, so say you're running gas, VP, for example, that fuel on a turbocharged engine on a titanium exhaust valve is a no-go. And the reason behind it is because of the amount of temperature that it creates, it will actually start uh, diminishing the life of that titanium valve. And what will happen is it will actually start getting brittle at a certain point. So metallurgically, it changes the material very, very quickly. You know, we get always asked about titanium valves, how long do they last in an engine? I wish I knew that, that answer. I, you know, I wish I knew the lottery number too. You know, I could be a millionaire today, but the reality is we don't know the answer to that question. And the answer is really elongation. You know, um, when you look at elongation on a stem of a valve, especially a titanium valve, uh, it gets to a certain point. And a certain point, for example, is whether that valve has elongation at six thousandths, eight thousandths, ten thousandths, twelve thousandths. Really, that valve is feeling uncomfortable in that area at that point. Uh, and you're lashing the motor now maybe two, three, four times, you know, in the engine. It's time to replace it at that point. Uh, seat wear is another indication on a titanium valve that can tell you that you need to replace it. Um, we look at you know, a lot of the stuff that engine builders send back to me after doing uh, a testing or a project or an engine that's run uh, a few races. 
And we get back here, we call them pizza cutters sometimes because the valve looks like literally a pizza cutter, you know, the seat's completely gone on the valve. And the reality is it's either a compatibility issue, a spring problem, um, or an application problem in general that they try to use this type of material uh, in this application. And it's just not feasible. You just can't use it. Um, and the flip side, stainless steel. Stainless steel is fantastic. Great for turbocharge engines, aspirated engines, in general, great for everything. Um, the backdraw from stainless steel is obviously weight. You know, you, you try to manage valve train weight um, with some of these applications and you're trying to get every single inch out of it. And a pound is a lot, it's, it's a ton. I mean, talk to a Formula One engineer and throw to him, oh, I'm, at, I'm putting an extra pound on the valve train. He's going to murder you, you know, because he doesn't want to see pounds. He wants to see grams. He wants to see a couple grams at that, you know, that really would perform the engine the way it needs to. But the good thing about stainless steel multi-valves cylinder heads is we're dealing with smaller stem valves. And the reality is, is we can build today a stainless valve comparable to a titanium valve in the same apples to apples compare, comparing both. And we're not that drastic in weight wise where we can do other things within the valve train itself to help out with the additional, let's just call it 8% more weight that that stainless valve is adding compared to that titanium valve. But what you're going to be getting is the reliability from the stainless. You're going to be getting the longevity. I mean, all these factors really is what the stainless steel valve is today. And we still feel that the majority of the engines that are really built, unless, again, it's a drag race engine, you're putting the adequate fuel in there. And I'm talking alcohol. I'm talking E85, something that your EGTs are not more than 1,200 degrees on the exhaust side. And let's look at titanium. Let's see if that is a viable source at that point uh, to put that type of material in those type of applications to see um, if the improvement will be there or not. Guarantee it will be because you look at obviously, again, weight wise. So you're gonna improve quite a bit of the RPM range as well as stability within uh, the valve train itself. I had another question here is from Chris um, and, and it's actually a two-parter. Oh, hang on. Let me go. We got a, it, it scrolled up on me. <laughs> Could a sodium filled valve be produced if I wanted one? And are there any hollow stem or hollow stem and head options? Okay. So sodium filled valves, you know, this is something that's come about in the market and a lot of questions we've had um, because we've never pushed the sodium filled valve in the market. You know, it's, it's great for an OEM engine, sodium fill valves, very governed um, where you see certain temperatures, um, regulated temperatures on the engine, no extreme environments that are really going on again, where, you know, you're going from uh, 1500 degrees to all the way up to 2000 degrees and then going back down, throwing a, you know, a shot of nitrous on the car, uh, putting a turbocharger on it, a larger turbocharger, putting more force induction. You know, sodium fail valves just don't react correctly when you put these type of applications together uh, because the sodium, 
basically the sodium works at a certain point. You turn on the engine at 200 degrees, the sodium turns into liquid. And all the purpose of a sodium fill valve is to cool the stem and part of the portion of the head of the valve. That's great, again, for where the valve itself and the material you've used, sodium bases today, avionics that you look at, they're only good to 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. Once you exceed that temperature, now you're disrupting that sodium in there. So whether that sodium will stop traveling up and down the valve becomes a very large gray area. And in a lot of cases, it could stop traveling in that area because of the extreme temperatures. You have a hollow valve at that point if that sodium inside there gets disrupted and you don't want that. You don't want that uh, hollow part on the bottom side of the head of the valve um, because it, then again, it could be catastrophic on the engine. A lot, of, a lot of manufacturers, other valve manufacturers get away with using less quality materials and they throw a sodium and now the valve becomes a little bit better. That's really not the answer to that question. We've really always stuck to our guns to go with a solid type valve um, when it has to do with turbocharged engines, uh, engines that are extreme in environment, again, with nitrous, so on and so forth, as well as looking some dynamics with uh, higher compression, normally aspirated engines. We've stuck to our guns with, uh, with some solid piece valves. Now, where we've seen a lot of improvement is on the two valve technology. We have come out with hollow stem valves. We were the first to hit the, hit the ground in 2004 uh, for the domestic market. Um, we looked at taking a lot of weight out of a particular hollow stem valve and stainless at 1130 seconds, which is a large valve for these small block uh, and big block engines. Uh, and we, increase, yes, the RPM, the performance of the engine. But again, most of these motors and still today uh, are put in, you know, classes like stocker classes, you know, classes that you can't touch the cylinder head. You can't do anything to the cylinder head, but you can put lighter valves in there. You know, angles, when you look at different designs of the valves, you can look at uh, improving quite a bit of the design of the valve as well in the hollow stem to remove some of that weight and improve the engine where uh, a lot of these classes don't allow you to, um, you know, um, go this avenue with, with, with hollow stem or not. So, you know, just, just to kind of sum it up, you know, we use hollow stem valves, but we don't touch anything in the hollow stem valves in a multi-valve cylinder head. Reason behind it, they're too small. Um, there's no really benefits from it. We tried it with the 2JZ uh, super engine. Uh, back in the mid 2000s. Number one, the cost factor was very large. And number two, no benefits from it, you know, at all, very little, you know, if any. While we're talking about that, someone did ask about, has anyone looked at additive manufacturing to make a hollow or honeycomb fill lightweight valve? Uh, honeycomb, <laughs> yeah, I mean, honeycomb film, we, didn't, we haven't looked at any of that. I mean, we really haven't uh, filled it uh, with any other material, per se, on a hollow part. Um, what was the other question? Uh, honeycomb fill, let's say make a hollow or honeycomb fill lightweight valve, just maybe looking at uh, additive manufacturing to, to produce that. 
Right. Um, I mean, hollow, we've played around with hollow heads, hollow stems, you know, um, we've played around with that a lot and we have produced that for exclusively pro stock. We have not done that with any other application. Uh, and we were able to do that. Um, reason behind it is because again, the size of the valves, uh, they run a five sixteen stem valve. Uh, we have a lot of material to work with. Um, but at the same token, you know, you get X amount of runs out of it and you're done, you know, at that point. Luke, I'll direct this to you and Zeke, certainly if you want to follow up as well. Uh, Tony Tobias wants to know what part do engine dynos play in assessing performance improvements after modifying the cylinder heads? It's absolutely critical. Um, the biggest thing for us, uh, you know, a lot of shops have chassis dynos. Um, we do too. Uh, we do both because you're dynoing the entire drive line. And we want to know that there's there's inefficiencies we can we can find in the drive line, um, but from an engine that that's for our race cars for an actual engine development um, aspect. It's easy to work on the engine. It's easy to make changes. You're standing if you do this for a living, and you're working on engines every day, you've got to be comfortable in how you pick up and move blocks, how you pick up and move cylinder heads around. Um, you're, you're moving a hundred heads a day or something, you, you know, you're going to wear yourself out. The engine dyno is a tool that allows for two things. Number one, oh, I'm moving my camera, um, controlling the environment. Uh, basically if you have a good engine dyno setup where you control the airflow, where you control the temperature, where you can control the humidity, where you can isolate variables, then you can do good testing where you can isolate movement on the engine stand. Um, you know, there's all different kinds of engine dynos. And most of us engine builders don't have a million dollar AVL dyno. Um, let's just be realistic. We have good equipment. That's not what Formula One or IndyCar or some of these, you know, top tier uh, places are dealing with. Um, but we can really set up a nice test facility where we can control all the airflow and make sure we have good clean air, make sure we're controlling our temperature. I know I go dyno an engine here. Um, I'm pulling air from a massive amount of space uh, to make sure that we have, I, I could dyno all day with the same temperature, whether it's 15 degrees outside or whether it's 70 degrees outside, I'm pulling from a climate controlled uh, massive amount of airspace in here. So we're gonna get the same air quality. Um, it's, it's all about controlling variables. It's also about being able to work on the engine. So if I want to test camshafts, cylinder heads, swap things around, I'm standing up at work height. I can pull a car away from the dyno. I can pull a new one up to it. It's all about efficiency and, and making sure you're not bending over a car, trying to work in the car, you know, under the hood, strapped to a dyno or you know, unstrapping it from a dyno and then putting it on a lift and restrapping it, you changed everything just by unstrapping it, just loosening a strap and tightening a strap on a chassis dyno, you changed it. So it's all about just controlling variables and, and making it so that you can, in a time efficient manner and within the same conditions, dyno back to back, uh, the engine dyno is critical. It's also laid back. It's the engine's not moving around like a car does on the chassis dyno. We're sitting behind a glass that you could shoot with a gun and you know rod fly at it nothing's going to happen to you we're sitting outside got a coke and a your lunch and your 
running the sticks and you're watching all your data, it's, it's a nice environment. You don't have headsets on, you're just kind of sitting there and enjoying the day running the engine and you can, you can sit there and run programs on it. You can run endurance programs, break in programs and uh, kind of babysit the engine and learn. And, and, but it's really still, it's still a lot of user uh, interface and, and how the, the effort you put in will affect the, the results you get out of it. So you got to be able to control all those variables. I've had dyno tests where we spent days on the dyno and had to throw everything we learned away because we goofed up something in, in our control. So it's, it's, it's a science experiment and you have to control uh, and have control of all those variables and make sure that you're accounting for everything. But it's critical in, in engine development. If you're not testing, then what are you testing on? You're testing it on customer cars that you don't have control. You're just going off what they tell you and they could have screwed everything up or they could have done everything right. You don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, Zeke, we've talked about cylinder heads and porting and polishing and, and valve materials and all of that. How about valve springs and valve spring technology? What have we learned in the last decade or so? Right. So uh, valve springs have really, um, they've evolved quite a bit. Um, one in design, two in materials processes, uh, heat treatment processes specifically. Uh, looking at finishes on the valve spring has been very critical. Um, the big, the big jump that we made in the leaps and bounds that we made on valve spring technology was really getting, uh, looking at particular uh, dynamics on that spring and how this spring will react to having these different processes and finishes on the spring. You know, the wires have gone exponentially great. You know, you look at the inclusions uh, on some of the, uh, you know, wires from Japan or other companies and they've become very very good you know where you're getting clean clean wire all across your manufacturing and not having uh, to do too many QC steps within uh, the process uh, like they used to do uh, back in the day you know you talk about 15 plus years ago um, really what we've enhanced quite a bit is to grab most of these valve springs today and they have to be a good quality spring uh, to allow you to, to get involved in this, but to run very close coil binds today. Today, it's not acceptable in any type of engine, whether it's a two valve cylinder head or four valve cylinder head to run extremely wide coil binds. And I'm talking about triple digits on coil binds where guys are looking at 100,000, 120,000 before coil bind. That's just not acceptable today, you know, and most applications. You have to keep the distance on most of these newer technology springs very close to coil bind. And I'm talking 40, 50, 60 thousands uh, before coil bind. And that's where you're going to draw most of that energy within that valve spring, and you're going to draw it outside of it. And keeping that energy outside of that spring initially will help the stability, will help the harmonics of the valve spring. It will help the longevity as well, the lifespan. We look at sometimes dynamics internally, and the fact is having such close coil binds, you can increase valve spring life sometimes by 10, 15, 20%, you know, overall. That's huge, you know, that's very large where that spring is happy. It's, it's not issuing, we call them slinky sometimes, because we'll look at 
some of the initial springs and you throw a ton of coilbine at them. Let's see what happens, you know, and they literally form into a slinky. Um, we start tightening up and that's the slinky now and that, that harmonic instability will start diminishing and diminishing and you'll start seeing these colors overall um, start becoming more of the reddish, the oranges, the yellowish, and really start basically uh, finding a sweet spot, you know, overall on the spring. Dressing a spring is another avenue where um, we love it, you know, where we put chamfers on springs on the upper bottom part of the spring. Um, sometimes, you know, cost factor is, is a point on a valve spring, but, you know, rolling the edges, a lot of valve springs that get manufactured, they get cut right off. You get a sharp edge on either side. Um, you know, high tech, high tech valve springs, very expensive valve springs. You have to radius all those edges through and through. That helps out not only with uh, the spring itself, but it helps out with the dynamics between the retainer and the spring. It doesn't allow the, the retainer itself, if it has excessive amount of movement, it doesn't allow the retainer itself to embed itself in those sharp edges around that spring. It just literally hugs itself around those radiuses and that improves it uh, a lot, you know, overall, because there's a lot of misconceptions and the fact that people say, well, titanium retainers, you know, they wear too fast, you know, they're, they're not reliable. Well, if you dress the spring correctly and you have the right details really placing on a valve spring, the retainer itself also designing it correctly around the valve spring. And we call it press fit, right? Where you're putting that retainer on the valve spring and it's snapping in there. There's very little to no movement. Your titanium retainer will have very good life, you know, at that point. Not as good as steel because obviously it's still a much softer property and material, but it will have very, very good life, you know, overall. Um, and as we're starting to wrap up on time, I think we could probably do this for three days and not run out of questions <laughs> and things to talk about, which is great. But, um, you know, do also want to let folks know um, if they're interested in the products that Ferraria has, um, how can they contact you? Distribution through engine builders directly? Right. So, you know, guys at Four Piston, great dealer of ours, as well as they do installation for you. They do the whole engine, if you like. You know, they're a great dealer for us out of Indiana. Um, they deal a lot in the sport compact market. You can deal with them directly. Uh, if your guy just building a couple engines, you know, a year, you need valve train components, you can just buy the components from them as well. Our distribution network is very large. We're worldwide. Um, you can buy directly through your dealer if it is convenient for you. In a lot of cases, those dealers have other parts, you know, that you typically want. Um, so they give initial discounts on the whole dollar amount that you're actually purchasing per year. So it ends up working out a little bit better for you. We are a company and we still stand to be true that uh, we still deal with engine builders. Um, engine builders are still uh, a lot of our business. We love working with them. They push the envelopes for us. They push us to do better stuff. Um, so you can call us direct as well. You're building a couple engines a year. Uh, you just need some technical advice or you want to purchase direct from us, you can call us direct, you know, and also purchase through our website, which is uh, forea.com. 
Um, you're not going to get the best pricing again, because if you go through a dealer like Four Piston, um, you're going to get much better pricing and you're going to get a, a lot of tech expertise as well. Something that they, they may not know, they'll bounce back to us and say, look, you know, we got this guy on the phone. He's asking such and such on this valve material. There's something new that we've come out with. We'll answer that question. He can get back to them and then we can move forward. But um, we're very much, you know, we love the phone. You know, I know a lot of companies don't love the phone. We do. Um, you can send us an email and obviously get in contact with us, you know. And Luke, for Four Piston and, and what you do with Soraya and, and really what you do for your customers and all of that, is there anything you want to let folks know who might be here on the webinar? Yeah, um, best way to get a hold of us for general inquiries, uh, basic questions um, about engines and parts, uh, probably through our social media is probably the quickest and easiest way. Um, if you have more detailed questions, engine applications, uh, we put engines in everything, whether it's open wheel, uh, Delara chassis or Leger or dirt cars, we put engines in everything. We have some pretty uh, exceptional engines from that, that race, you know, up to 24 hour races, um, naturally aspirated up to 500 horsepower and, and turbocharged uh, to the limit of um, every part that we put in it. Um, all the way down to just regular, pretty uh, tame, uh, raceable products. Um, that's probably best through email. Uh, if you call our, we have people on the phones every day, you're welcome to call. You're probably not going to get me on the phone on a day to day. Um, but email you will. So shoot an email to Luke at team four piston.com. Uh, I can help with the details and also establish a direct line of communication through the phone as well. Um, but, uh, mostly focused on four valve technology and, uh, a lot of inline four cylinder engines that we're putting into every type of racing, um, and we like to win. We like to win more than anything. That's the best thing. So if you like to win, we're your guy. <laughs> awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you both so much. Um, I, I do want to also let you know that, you know, if you have any more questions about Freya or anything like that, you can always go to ePartrade and go to their page on ePartrade and find out how to contact them directly. But uh, Zeke, Luke, really want to appreciate your, uh, say thank you for your participation here today and appreciate everyone thank who you. joined. And we still have more, but thank you, gentlemen.